Alright, thanks again for coming guys. Um, we'll go through a few logistical procedural announcements and then we'll get started, okay? Uh, first of all, if you didn't get one of these, make sure you have one of these. Uh, they're on the back table. God's Transformation of Man. We'll be following that today in our message. So if you don't have one of those, uh, grab this and the lesson and everything else that comes with it. So you'll need this today. Um, secondly, if you were uh, somebody who's been in Build before and you are using your notebook from last time, uh, we have new binders and tabs. So we have a bunch of tabs on the back table for you. You just need three tabs this year instead of five. One says outlines. Those are the, the message notes. One says homework. That's the homework we do each time. And then one says resources. That has, that's a place for you to put your reading plans and all that other stuff. So this is a good way to divide your stuff up. Um, if you didn't grab one of those, if you have an old notebook from a previous year, that's on the table in the back. Make sure you grab that before you go. Okay, and then one more thing is um, we have a cleanup plan. We have a plan for how to clean up after ourselves here. And so I contacted Allie, and she put together um, a schedule for us of how we're going to get cleanup done here. And the way we're going to do it, like I mentioned last time, is that we are going to assign cleanup on a per-discussion group basis. So this week, my discussion group is going to take care of cleanup. Next week, next time David's, and the time after that's Kyle's, and then we'll just rotate through. And so you can grab one of these and put it someplace in your notebook, and that will help you remember which week um, your discussion group is going to be involved in cleanup. And again, the main activity here is just to get everything that's in here and in our uh, small group discussion rooms ready for tomorrow morning. Okay? And I apologize in advance for the air conditioning. It's set on 72, 74, but it doesn't feel like it's 74 in here. So thanks for bearing with us. Hopefully it's working soon. Uh, it's getting cooler, so that'll help as well. I want to thank you for being here. Thanks again for um, getting up early and taking time to meet with us. One of the things we want to say frequently and often here that I, I hope you guys just becomes part of your thinking here at Grace Bible Church is that when you uh, participate in something like this, you're bringing the fruit of your walk with the Lord to bear on the rest of the men in the body at Grace Bible Church, and in particular these men here. So what you're doing is, is you're helping to grow one another in holiness and in righteousness and life. And so thank you for being willing to do that for us. So I appreciate you being here. Um, could be someplace else this morning right now, but you're here and I praise God that you're here, so thanks again. All right, let's pray and get started. Then we will walk through the disciplines, and then we will split up into our discussion groups, and then we'll come back after that for our teaching time. So let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father, I thank you for each and every one of these men. I praise you and thank you for bringing them here this morning. Lord, thank you for the work of salvation that you have done in believers, Lord, that you have changed people from the kind of people that we were in our natural-born condition to the kind of people that we are today. And Lord, that was nothing of ourselves. It was all of you. So I praise you and I thank you for that. Lord, we are here this morning and uh, we are here to hear from you. We are here to share with one another. So I pray for us, Lord. I pray that as we spend time together, you would help us. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit as one another is speaking, that we would listen well. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit to contribute and share well in our discussion groups. 
or that you may really use the, the body to cause the growth of the body here. I thank you for each and every man here. I thank you for the families that are represented here. I thank you for the homes that are represented, the households. Lord, I pray that our time together would, would serve those households, would serve those families well to lead them in holiness. So, Lord, we give this time to you. We are dependent upon you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, if you have your notebooks, why don't you turn it over and look at the back side of your notebook. One thing we're going to do, if you've been in Build before, you know we do this every time. Uh, but one thing we're going to do is we're going to spend a few minutes each time we get together uh, reviewing what we call the disciplines, uh, the Build disciplines. And there are five of them. There's one that relates to your heart, one that relates to your home, one relates to ministry, one relates to deacon qualifications, and one relates to how we actually handle God's Word, how we study God's Word. We're going to go through those each and every time we're together because those are the things that we feel that grace here are the underpinnings of your relationship with the Lord. And the emphasis on most of them is going to be your heart. So when we talk about the heart, we're talking about the kind of person that you are and the kind of person that you cultivate yourself to be when you meet together with the Lord. The most important thing you can do in your entire life is to make a decision to meet with the Lord over his word and allow him to speak to you about his revelation of himself and his explanation of who you are. When you meet with the Lord, you allow yourself to take in the truth of who he is. And that informs you. and That makes you ready to take into the rest of your life uh, the truth from God's word. The first place you take that is your household. You take the fruit of your own heart shepherding as you've met alone with God into whatever your house context is. Whether you have roommates or whether you're married or whether you have parents or you have children or whatever the situation is, when you meet with God and you grow in your understanding of God, you allow God to amaze you with the truth of who he is. You are ready to serve and function well in the rest of your household. And that involves a relationship with all the members I just met wives and children, parents. That is what equips us well to function the way that God designed for us. So we want everybody here to meet alone with God in his word and to be speaking back to God in prayer, communicating back to God, not in a way that informs him, but that agrees with him about what he already knows to be true about you. So we want to emphasize discipline one is our heart. We want to emphasize discipline two is our home, where we take the fruit of our heart shepherding into our home. Discipline three that we mention every week that we meet together here is the ministry. And I'll just read this for you. Uh, With a heart for God, the gospel, and a household following his lead, the ministry leader in Grace Bible Church steps into the church to shepherd others towards God and the gospel. Whether that's a formal ministry role that you have here, say you serve in next generation ministries or student ministries or something like that, or it's just informal like our experience here this morning. When you come to church having shepherded your own heart, having shepherded uh, your own home, you are ready to function well in interactions with other guys. It doesn't mean you've had a great week and everything has worked according to your plan and everything you would hope for, but what it means is that you see the world, you see the life that God has given you from his perspective, and you're ready to bring the joy of that into other people and to share with them what the Lord is teaching you. So that's what we want to do here. We want to have ministries with one another, whether it's a formal role or an informal role. We want to be shepherding our heart, shepherding our homes, so that when we gather together here as men, we're ready to bless one another in a biblical way. 
The fourth discipline relates to deacon qualifications. The ministry leader in Grace Bible Church prayerfully pursues qualification for deacon and elder in this church. The qualifications for a deacon and an elder are spelled out for us in the New Testament. They're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's a whole list of qualifications for deacons and a whole list of qualifications for elders. And the idea here that we want to put in front of everybody is these are marks of holiness that every Christian man should run after. They definitely need to be in place. They definitely need to be exemplary in the lives of elders and in deacons. But these are the things that every man, whether you're a young man or an old man or somewhere in between, should run after, should aspire to, should, should plead with God that he should grow. So every man should have his eye on these qualifications, whether it's elder qualifications of being above reproach and being able to defend the word or to be temperate or to be humble, to be not pugnacious, or whether it's a deacon qualification of being one who serves well and is not addicted to wine and is not fond of sordid gain. Every man should run after those things. So we want to emphasize the fourth discipline as well here. I just want every man to know that this is what my aim is for by God's grace. And the fifth discipline that we want people to understand and embrace here is that there is a right way to handle God's word. There is a right way to read God's word, a right way to take in the words of scripture as you read them. And there are principles and practices to do that. And we want to begin to prepare people here in build to do that. Because if you have a Bible and you, you are reading it, it, it's very helpful to know how to read your Bible and what God is saying. And so we have several ministries here that are, that are designed to help us to do that well, uh, both for men and for women. The women have Wellspring. That is the beginnings of that for the women. The women are going to have study groups that are coming in the next year for the book of Titus, which we just went through. We have Build here. The next step after that here is the Trust. And we have the Grace Bible Institute. And we have Shepherdology. All of those are ministries that are designed to help a man grow in his ability to handle the word, first and foremost, so he can know God more deeply and love God and obey God and be a more effective witness for him. So those are the five disciplines that we want to keep in front of everybody. Uh, if you can aim after those things, those things will pay major, major dividends in your relationship with the Lord. So um, we want you to keep those in front of you. We'll be looking at those on a weekly basis. What we'll be doing in the weeks to come is to talk about one aspect of our prayer lives, different ways in which we can grow our prayer life as we seek to grow in, in discipline one, the ability to shepherd our heart with the word of God and to communicate back to God. So in each of the following weeks, um, we'll be talking about one or two different aspects of our prayer life and how to grow our prayer life. Okay. All right, so that is it for the disciplines this morning. What we're going to do now is we're going to break up into our discussion groups. Kyle's group and David's group are going to be meeting in the three-year-old classroom. And the I forget which age this is. Maybe it's the sixes over here. So time to meet with one another and share what God has been teaching you for the last couple of weeks. My group is going to meet over in the office area. And we will try to be back here by 7.50. So we'll aim to be back here at 7.50, 7.45, get some more food, stuff like that. Be ready to go around 7.50. Thanks, guys. All right. We are going to be looking at God's Word because we want God to inform us about what He does in the lives of people that He chooses to Himself. So um, I know that every time I need to read God's Word and I look at God's Word, I need His help. So let's go to Him and ask Him to help us, and then we'll make our way through this. Okay? Father, once again, we come before You and we praise You and thank You for the privilege that we have of sitting before you. Uh, Lord God, you are the creator God. You are holy. You are just. 
You are righteous. Lord, everything you do is consistent with your purpose for all of human history. I pray for us as we encounter your word today, as we engage with your word, that you would speak to us. Lord, your communication to us is more than we can grasp on our own. We need your help. So I pray for your spirit to indwell each man here, that you would allow us to understand your word, you would allow us to understand what you have done. Lord, I pray that when we leave, we will be men who are better equipped with a clearer understanding of what you have done to save sinners. Lord God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we all know that um, when we have, when we are born, we are born into a natural condition. We're born into a condition where um, if you have any children, they're young, you can see the condition of man in his natural born condition. Um, we know that there is something very important to look at and observe here. What I want to do is just take and point out how we're going to read this chart. If you have this, you'll notice in this card that there is a lot of information on this card. And what we want to do is just spend a few minutes understanding how to read this and how to look at this. And so what I'm going to do is just hold it in front of myself and concentrate on it this way. Um, There are three sections to this chart. This chart represents the three states that a person who becomes a believer takes and they, they live in from the beginning of their life to their Christian life and into eternity. And this chart has three sections, one on each of the folds that represent that. We have the unregenerate man. That's the natural born condition that every person is in. We have the regenerate man. That is the condition that a Christian is in when they're alive here on this earth. And then we have the heavenly man. And that is the condition that a person will be in in heaven for eternity with God. And so we're going to be looking at those three conditions or those three states that a person is in. It's also important to understand that there are events that trigger the transitions from one state to the next. And if you look at the first section of your chart, you can see that in gray there is writing near the top that says regeneration. Regeneration is the event that transitions a person from being an unregenerate man to a regenerate man. Okay, So it's the transitioning event. It's the trigger that moves a man from one condition to another. And then you see another trigger, which is uh, there, another event, which is called death. That's just at the beginning of the third section on your chart there. And what that is, is that's the transition between a person being a regenerate man and being a heavenly man. Okay? And then there's one more set of transitions and that or events, and that is the resurrection or the rapture that is at the very end. And we'll get to talking about that. That is the, the way in which God inaugurates the future age that is to come. And it has to do with whether a person is alive at that time, and that would be rapture, or whether a person has died and is in Christ, that would be resurrection. Also, some very important things to understand. You see some stick figure men at the top of this. And can you all notice how the man starts on the left and he's all black? Um, and what you see, if you look very carefully, is that there's a, a slight border around the outside of that. Okay, and the border points to the members of the man, his hands, his his body, his physical nature, who he is. And then the inside is is completely black. That relates to the inner man and who he is. And the blackness there is meant to represent the condition that that man is in, a spiritually dead condition before God. And as you look at this, and it moves forward from left to right, as you enter into the regenerate man, you see that he's no longer black. He has some yellow to him. 
and as he moves forward through the regenerate condition, he's, as he's moving towards death, he's becoming increasingly yellow. That speaks to the sanctification that's taking place in the life of a person who truly is a believer. They're, they're becoming more and more sanctified uh, up until the point of their death. And then the heavenly man, you see there is, there is complete yellow. There is no tinge of, of black at all. That, be, that represents the fact that the person who is a heavenly man, there is no sin in his life. There is no trace of sin. There's no presence of sin. As you look backwards to the left, you see increasing evidence of sin in the person's life. And back over on the left side, you see it's completely sinful. There's no righteousness or holiness in that person. So that's the top of the chart. At the bottom of the chart, what we have is, is very interesting things that relate to each one of these transition events. So if you follow the, the kind of gray coloring down from re regeneration, what you'll see in the first two sections of your chart is the explanation of the regeneration event. And we'll see as we talk about it more, there are components to the regeneration event and there are benefits to the regeneration event. And all of these are outlined in scripture for us. And so what you see at the very bottom third or quarter of your page is an explanation of these transition events. So the first two sections talk about the regeneration event. Uh, over there on the right-hand side of the second section, the beginning of the third section, there's an explanation of what happens at death. And then moving forward, there's an explanation of the rapture, and there's an explanation of the resurrection, the transition of man into the eternal kingdom. So that's how you want to read this. We want to spend a few minutes just helping you understand all of the information. Because if you stand back and look at it, you say, well, there's a lot of information here. We want to just know how we read that, okay? Any questions about the chart itself and just the basic format and layout of the chart? Okay. By the way, does anybody here know Mike Jones, the church? If you know Mike Jones, tell him thank you, because Mike developed this on his own time for us. We went to him and we said, Mike, can you, can you put all of these ideas in a way that makes sense on a piece of paper for people. And Mike is one of those guys who really understands the layout. He really understands branding. He really understands presentation. And, and the Lord has equipped him and skilled him and gifted him to do this. So um, we have information here. This is the second generation of this card. Um, and uh, if you want, just uh, express your appreciation to Mike for what he's done for us to put this down. So uh, praise God for that. Okay. So as you have your chart, keep that with you as we're going through this. Um, so what we're going to be doing here is we're going to be looking at um, God's transformation of man. From unregenerate man on the left of your chart to heavenly man on the right of your chart. The events that are in the states of life of a believer. Okay? So first what we want to look at here today is the unregenerate man. This is really important that we understand this. So we're looking at the unregenerate man. And what we see there is that there is an explanation in the blue area, the general high-level explanation of who that person is, what they are like. This is a man who is without Christ, and we want to get this word, we want to clearly understand this word, he is unmixed. He is unmixed in his sinful condition. This is a person without Christ, he's unrighteous. And by the word unmixed, we mean that there is no evidence of anything but his sinful condition in him. So if you have your Bibles, will you turn to Romans chapter 8? This is a very clear passage that helps us understand the condition of natural man before God. We're going to be reading verses 5 through 13, but in this section we're going to look at verses 5 through 8. This passage helps us understand the true condition of a man. And it speaks in two things at once. It speaks about the kind of person 
who is in their natural unregenerate condition, but it is also speaking about a person who is in the regenerate condition, which is what we're going to talk about next. So as we read this, be looking at the, the descriptors that talk about uh, the kind of things that are true about the unregenerate man. So let me read this. And I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's God's description of what the unregenerate man is like. That's God's assessment. These are God's words. So verse 5, at the beginning of verse 5, talks about those who are according to the flesh. When we speak about flesh here, we're not speaking about our hands and our feet and our skin and our muscles and everything else. What we're talking about is that which is sinfully weak and falters before God. And it loves to be in that condition before God. It loves to be sinfully weak. It loves to be faltering before God, even though it might not recognize itself by that. And the person who lives according to the flesh is someone who lives by the standard of their own natural condition and the one that is sinfully weak and faltering before God. So that's the condition the person is in. They're sinfully weak and before God, and they love to live by that standard. Later on in verse 5, we read that if that person sets their minds on the things of the flesh, your mind is who you are inwardly before God who you are as a thinker, who you are as a meditator before God. This is the person who takes their thinking self and they set it according to the standard of what is sinfully weak and faltering before God. So they set their mind on a standard that's, that's weak before God. And notice that there's no conflict in this person between their mind and their body. This person is in complete agreement with who they are. Uh, They love the condition that they're in. When God is describing this person, there's no tension here for this person. This person loves the condition they're in. At the beginning of verse 6, we see that the mind set on the flesh is death. And the death here is not physical death that's being spoken of. It's spoken of, what is being spoken of here is a sinful, spiritual dead condition before God. One in which all of my thoughts will lead me only to a position of spiritual enmity before God. So there's no spiritual life. So the mind that is set on the flesh is dead. It's, it's, it's set on a condition where there's no spiritual life at all. And verse 7 tells us that the mind set on the flesh is not only dead, but it's hostile towards God, and it does not subject itself to the law of God. Um, in my dead condition, I'm only a hostile rebel before God. There's nothing in me that wants to align myself with God. So this is God's assessment of us. And in all of that, there's nothing in us that has any desire to please God. By his common grace, we may accede to doing good things, but there's nothing in us that wants to please God and adore God and honor God and submit to God. So this is the kind of person that a man is in his natural-born condition. It's very important to understand that putting a change of environment before that person accomplishes nothing for that person. It accomplishes nothing for making that person able to please God. A new set of rules by which the person would live does not make them able to please God. Um, Neither do new friends or a new job. Neither does um, a new church. 
None of those things make a person able to please God. All of them are worthless because none of them address the root issue, which is the heart condition of the man who's in the unregenerate condition. So the summary is you've got a man here. As you look at the chart, he is in an unmixed condition. And so what we want to do here is we want to just look at some scriptures that help us understand this. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 is mentioned here, as you see in the gray section in the middle of your page. In chapter 1, Paul talks about the work that God does to save a sinner. And chapter 1 of Ephesians is one of the most beautiful sections of scripture you can read. It it points out all of God's kindness and all of God's wisdom and all of God's knowledge. Uh, But chapter 2 starts with an explanation of what sinful man is like. In verse 3 we read that among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. We were indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. So what we see there in verse 3 is that there's no distinction, there's no disunity, there's no discord between the flesh and the mind. The flesh and the mind have common desires. Later on in chapter 4 of the same letter, Paul is speaking of unbelievers as he's talking about how the believer lives out the truth of the gospel in their life in the last three chapters of the letter. He's comparing that to the kind of person that they used to be. In verse 17, Paul speaks of a futility in the mind of the unbeliever and how they were darkened in their understanding and they were excluded from the life of God and how they had a hardness of heart at the end of verse 18. In verse 19, we talk about how they become callous and they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. This is the state of a person in their natural-born condition. They love to run after the things of the flesh. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 5. He's describing how a Christian has a position of justification before God. But he's describing the person that they once were and how they are now justified. And this is what he says when he's describing the person who once was an unbeliever but now is justified before God he says in verse 6 of Romans 5 while we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for us the one who is unbelieving the one who is unregenerate is helpless Christ died for the ungodly a person is ungodly so he's helpless and he's ungodly in verse 8 we read that the person is a sinner it says God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. So the unregenerate man is a sinful man. He's a sinning man. He's a sinner. In verse 9, we read that this person needs to be rescued from God's wrath. Paul writes, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. So the unregenerate is one who needs to be rescued and saved from God's wrath. And in verse 10, we read that that person also needs to be reconciled to God. So, we have a person here who's in an unmixed condition. They're unable to not sin. They're unable to not sin. They're unable to please God, and there's no internal fight within themselves regarding their sin. They're in complete alignment, in complete agreement, complete accord with their sin. They're dominated by sin, and they're enslaved to their sin. And sin rules all of their faculties, their thoughts, their emotions, their motivations, their actions. Sin is the ruler of their life. They're unable to shepherd their heart and they're under God's wrath and judgment. And that is the condition of the the unbeliever. That's the condition that every single one of us was born into. You have young children, they're cute and they're attractive and they're beautiful and they're God's gift to you. 
Um, but that is their natural born condition before God. And they grow in their capacity to demonstrate that as they grow, as the months and the weeks and the years go by in their life. And so the question here is, well, that is the natural born condition of man. What is God's response to that? And that's the second point that we're going to look at here. And that's the regeneration event. So we're going to look at the second section, the middle section of your, your card. This again is God's response to man's natural condition. The first section talked about the kind of man that a person is before God in their natural born condition. God looks at that and God has a specific response that he is going to make of how to save. So we want to keep a couple of different phrases in front of you. And you might want to jot these down for you. A couple of phrases that help you understand what is taking place in regeneration. And one of these is adoption through propitiation. Say that again. Adoption through propitiation. Adoption is a process of making a child a part of a family to which they don't naturally belong. Making a child a part of a family to which they don't naturally belong. And propitiation is the satisfaction of wrath. Satisfaction of wrath. So adoption through propitiation means God can bring a sinner into his family because Jesus satisfied the Father's wrath against that sinner. Adoption through propitiation. Second phrase we want to put in front of you that helps you remember and helps you understand more clearly what is happening during regeneration is penal substitutionary atonement. Lots of big words here. Penal substitutionary atonement. There's a penalty. There's a substitute. And there's atonement. There's the being brought into unity with another. So what that means is that Jesus paid the penalty in my place as a substitute. And in so doing, he's brought me into peaceful union with God. Penal substitutionary atonement. Those two phrases are are very, very helpful in understanding what is taking place um, in the regeneration and the purchase of a believer. But all of these things are not applied to every person in the world. There are many, many people who die apart from Christ. And what we want to understand is how these things are brought to bear on a person. And scripture tells us that as well. If you have your Bibles, would you turn in them to Acts chapter 20, verse 21? The Apostle Paul is finishing his missionary journey. I believe it's his third missionary journey. He's finishing and he is heading back to Jerusalem. And he's stopping and he's visiting with the church in Ephesus. And he's actually meeting with the elders of that church outside of the city of Ephesus. And he's meeting with them. And it's a very bittersweet time. He knows he's never going to see them again. But he's describing his demeanor towards them and the work that he has done. What we're going to do is we're going to read verses 20 and 21. And what we want to look at here is the idea of repentance and faith. Keeping in mind those two, those two ideas I had in front of you is adoption through propitiation and penal substitutionary atonement. How do they come to a person? They come to a person through repentance and faith. Let's read these verses. Starting in 20. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the regeneration event is taking place in somebody who has repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. This is not something that universally happens to every person at some point in their life. The person who repents towards God and has faith in the Lord Jesus as their substitute, as their sacrifice, as their propitious sacrifice, is the one who is regenerated. So what we want to look at here as we look at this is that there are actually, as you look at your um, sheet here on the bottom, we're going to be looking at the components of regeneration and the benefits of regeneration. And there are several things. There's about ten components to the regeneration event. What I want you to notice as we walk through them is who is doing the work in all of those things. So we're going to first look at the components of the regeneration event. What is actually taking place? What actually takes place when a person is regenerated? Before we do that, I'm going to get a drink so you guys can hear me for the next half hour. Okay. So... The first thing we want to look at, the first component of regeneration is actual new birth and new life by itself. That a person is constitutionally, they're different. They're substantially different in their nature for who they are. They have new birth. Ephesians chapter 2, the same passage we were looking at just a minute ago, uh, says, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there is a new birth. There is a making alive of a person. But not only is the person having new birth, they are positionally sanctified. And the word sanctification means to be set apart from. And so what is happening here is that a person is positionally set apart from the world by the inner working of God. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says in chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is a setting apart of a person from their relationship with the rest of the world into a relationship with God, separating them from who they used to be to who they are now. Another component of regeneration is justification, and this is a declared righteousness. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and um, he's talking about the process by which God makes a person a believer, And he says in chapter 3, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So justification is actually a gift. It's a declared righteousness. It's where God actually says, I declare that that person is righteous. That person hasn't done anything to be righteous. I'm declaring them as righteous. But they're not simply declared righteous. They're actually credited with righteousness. And it's not a righteousness of their own. It's a righteousness that is from God. And that's what imputation is. And we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where we read that God made him, who made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our, half, our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. What is taking place there is an exchange. Jesus Christ bears the sin of the believer at the cross. And in exchange, there is a righteousness which is imputed into that believer that comes from Jesus. Okay, so there's an exchange that's taking place there. We want to make sure we embrace that and understand that. That is not man's righteousness. That's the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross being put into the person who believes. We talked about adoption. This is another one of the components of regeneration where a person is taken from being in the family of the world to being in the family of God. 
Ephesians chapter 1, we read that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. God determined before the world began that he would take a person out of the world and bring them into his own family. A person who does not naturally belong in his family, he would put them in his family. That's what the process of adoption is, and it is a wonderful, wonderful process. The person who is in the unregenerate condition is an enemy of Christ, but the regeneration event makes them united with Christ. They have union with Christ. As I read verses 4 through 7 of Ephesians 2, just listen to all the ways in which a person is together with Christ. In verse 5, we read that God made us alive together with Christ. In verse 6, we read that we were raised up with Christ. And in verse 6, we also read that we were seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is a unity that the believer has with Christ. Um, Their position before God is not separate from Christ. It is in Christ because of the oneness that the Father and the Son have. Uh, In order to be in a right relationship with God, the believer needs to be in Christ. But the believer has sin which is offensive to God, and that's what expiation is. Expiation is the removal of sin from the person John the Baptist was preparing to baptize Jesus, and as Jesus was approaching, uh, he speaks out in John chapter 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the work of Jesus is not only to suffer in their place and absorb God's wrath against that person, but it's actually to cleanse that person and take their sin out of them and remove their sin from them so that they are clean, they are washed by the blood of Christ. We talked about propitiation earlier, the satisfaction of God's wrath. We read in 1 John 2.2 that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins. And the way that Jesus can be the propitiation for our sins is because he is not a created being. The sin of sinful man is such an offense against God that God has a response of anger and wrath that is beyond the capacity of a natural man to absorb within himself. A child can absorb the spanking from their mother or their father uh, in a reasonable amount of time. They can recover from it and they can move on. That's not the way it works with us absorbing God's wrath against us. We could never satisfy the full extent of God's anger against us because God's anger and his response against us is infinite because he's the creator and he's holy and we're created. And there's no created thing that can satisfy God's anger against us. There's no rock or tree or iceberg or mountain or ocean or star or moon that can satisfy God's anger against us. Only a creator could do that. And so he put his creator son on the cross to do that for us. And that's what it is to satisfy God's wrath against us. And also, another component of regeneration is redemption. Redemption is the process by which um, a person is released from the power of another by the payment of a price. There's three parties involved in, in redemption. There's the person who is holding one under power and under their power. There's the person being held under that power. And there's the third party that pays a price to redeem that second person away from the power of the first person. And Jesus did that with his blood at the cross. He paid the price of his own blood. That was the currency by which he released um, the believer from the penalty of their sin. So it's very important to understand that redemption is a work that only Jesus could do. Another component of regeneration is reconciliation. You have the passages there before us. Romans Romans chapter 6, verse 10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. 
That is something that is happening to a person. It doesn't say we've reconciled ourselves to God. It says we were reconciled to God. There's forgiveness. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Um, forgiveness is essential. It's the actual removal of the offense that our sin is against God. And the old man is crucified. The kind of person that we were no longer is. Galatians 2.20, Romans 6.6. Romans 6.6 says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So there's a lot of components to the regeneration of men. And as you look at every one of them, you can see that God is the one who is doing the working. God is the one who adopts. God is the one who redeems. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who puts a propitious sacrifice on the cross. God is the one who forgives. God is the one who imputes a righteousness into you. Um, And all of those things, these are things that are good to comprehend. We don't believe that any one of us can grasp the the full extent of that um, in our lives, but we want to be ones who continually grow in our understanding of that. So I urge you to keep this in front of you. Maybe you can put it somewhere in electronic form. I'm going to be sending it out to everybody in electronic form. Um, If you want to be looking at it on your computer, we have all of this. Somebody put it together for us. And uh, I'd encourage you to keep that close at hand. Scott? Yes? Can you speak to the three parties involved in our redemption? Absolutely. The three parties involved in our redemption. Um, One of them is sin. Sin holds a person captive before Christ. They are bound to sin. They're enslaved to sin. Um, Sin is holding that person captive. The person obeys sin. He's under sin. He lives with that sin. Uh, So sin is the one, is the power that's over a person. The second party that's involved there is the person who's being held by that sin. And it's the person who is going to be redeemed. And the third party that's involved is Christ, the one who redeems that person from the power of sin by his work on the cross. Very helpful that the word for redemption uh, is typically the word that's typically used there um, speaks to slavery. Um, there would be one who's actually somebody's property, their own, their slave. And so there, you know, you have the, the persons in a state of slavery, and then one comes in and they redeem, they purchase that person out of slavery, and and that provides, you know, what Scott was just saying. It's like we are a slave to sin, and Christ comes and He purchases us out of that slavery. The purchase, the price of that purchase, is His blood. So that that's kind of a little more what that the typical word there means, and uh, that always helps me have a good kind of word picture um, that is Christ purchasing, purchasing us out of slavery. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate that. But, but there is an actual purchase that takes place from slavery. There's no other way for that person to be released from their condition of slavery to sin. There, there's no other means. There is a purchase that must be paid, and the only purchase that will accomplish that is the blood of Christ. Okay, so those are the components of the regeneration event. So what does that mean for the believer? What is the benefit of a believer? Well, we've got these in front of us. I'm going to move through these rather quickly, and I'd encourage you to investigate these on your own. Um, 
First of all, the believer is one who is now loved by God. Formerly he was an enemy, but he's loved by God. Colossians 3.12. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The believer is somebody who is now loved by God. God has affections for them as a believer. The believer also is someone who has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? The Father actually dispatches the Holy Spirit to the unregenerate man, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit in that person that makes them alive. The Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence within that person. The person is also indwelt by Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. Christ is living within the believer today. It's not as if he's only in heaven at the right hand of God. He is, but he's in the believer. Now, the believer is also a member of Christ's body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now you are Christ's bodies and individually members of it. There is one body of Christ and every believer is a part of that body. They're a member of that body. They have access to God in Hebrews 4.16 in a way that the unbeliever never did. Just imagine this. This is what the believer has available to them. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Think back to your life as an unbeliever. Would you have wanted to draw near to the throne of God before? A God who is offended by all of your sin. A God who is angry with you for what you've done. Um, This is what a believer has. The benefit is now that they can draw near to the throne of grace and they can receive benefits from that. The, The believer is somebody who is under grace itself. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Romans 5 verses 1 and 2. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith, into this grace in which we stand. God's unmerited favor has been lavished upon the believer, and it is God's means of grace um, that allows him to walk in newness of life. The believer is saved from God's wrath. I read that earlier, Romans 5, 9. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus. The believer is free from condemnation, Romans 8, 1. Many of us are familiar with this. The verse says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is condemnation for those who are not in Christ, but for the believer, they are free from condemnation. They're unable to be separated from Christ. Regardless of anything you do, anything that you say, anything that you think, the believer is one who is not able to be separated from Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul writes, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height and depth, Any other created thing will be able to separate us from God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's nothing that can separate you from Christ. The love of God is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and there's nothing that can separate you from that. The believer also has peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is drastically different than the kind of person that you formerly were, where you were enemies of God. You now live in a peaceful relationship with God because of what Christ has done for you. You have the fruit of the Holy Spirit in you that you never had before. 
And this is very important that we understand when you there is one fruit of the Holy Spirit that's manifested in nine different ways in Galatians 5. There's one fruit manifested in nine different ways. And these are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The believer has all of these characteristics of themselves. They're all characterized together as being the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is measured by these nine things. All of them are in place. And some of them are growing faster than others, but every one of them is in place in a believer. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in a person's life. And lastly, the benefit is there's a citizenship that's in heaven. Someone who has come to Christ, who has been regenerated, who has been made new, who has new life, they actually have their citizenship in heaven. They're no longer a citizen of this world. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's very important that the believer understands that, yes, my two feet are on the ground here. I have a job here. I live here. I have a family here. I have roommates here. I have parents here. Um, I have a life here. But my citizenship is in heaven because that is where I am going. So all of those are the benefits to the believer. So it's very important to understand that that's the regeneration event. Regeneration is an event that happens that has lots of components, all of which are performed by God, and it has benefits to the believer. All right, so we're going to talk about the regenerate man himself. What is true about the man who's a regenerate man? So to get that, we're going to look at the middle section. We're going to look at the regenerate man. The main thing we want to understand here is that that person is in a mixed condition. This is a process of progressive renewal that's taking place in their life. The first man was unmixed in his sin. This person is now in a mixed condition. If you're a Christian and you're in this room today, you can identify that. Because you have affections for God, you love God, that once you never did before, but you also have the same body of flesh that you were born with. You also have a desire to run with the world. You also have the appeals to the world that come to you. So you're in a mixed condition. The main thing we want to get at here is that there is a tension for the believer. There's a tension between their affections for God that God has poured into them, and there is the world that they live in that appeals to them that they're not impervious to yet at this time. And so the same passage we started with in the last section, Romans 8 deals with this as a, as a very important passage if we understand um, in the same way that Romans 8 talks about a person who is in the flesh, it talks about the, the same kind of person that talks about a Christian, someone who's been regenerated. So let me do this. Let me take, take us back to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the same passage. So if you have your Bibles open, turn back to Romans chapter 5. Sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Romans 8, 5. Whereas formerly we were looking about the things that were true about the unregenerate man, now we're going to be looking at what this passage says about the regenerate man. Looking at verse 5, it says, There are those who are according to the Spirit. They set their minds according to the Spirit. In verse 6, it says that they have a mind that is set of the Spirit, and it's a contrast to the old man. It says, The mind set on the flesh is death, but, in contrast, the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. So the regenerate man has a mind that is set on the spirit. We look down to verse 9. It says, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. 
And so being in the spirit just means that you're, it doesn't mean that you're not influenced by the flesh, but what it means is that you're no longer the same person that you used to be. You're no longer the person who's in an unmixed, sinful condition. You're in the spirit means you've been set free from not being linked to just your physical desires. Reading on in verse 10, we read that if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. This could not be any more of a clear description of what is taking place in the Christian. They're in a mixed condition. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. There you have it for you. You have your body that you were born with. It still is living in this world. It has all of the things of this world that appeal to it. And it is inclined in some way to respond to those things. But, as Paul says at the end of this verse, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. That's the new creation in Christ that is expressed. It's not the one in heaven that you will be at the resurrection, but it's, it's what you have today as a believer. You have the Spirit in you. Um, we read in verse 11 that um, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. So we have new life in our bodies in verse 11. So that's what we want to understand. We want to understand that a man is in a mixed condition. The Christian man is in a mixed condition. The regenerate man is in a mixed condition. He still has the same body that he was born with, but he has new affections for God. And so there is a tension here. There is a true, true tension. So there are two verses that I want to put in front of you that help you understand um, the new identity that a person has in Christ in the mixed condition. Let's take a look at... um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Um, a person, it says here, but by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. By God's doing, we are in Christ Jesus. So the, the believer, the regenerate man, is in Christ. The believer is also free from the slavery of sin. In Romans chapter 6, um, we read in verses 6 and 7, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. One of the key components of the regenerate man is that he is no longer a slave to sin. The unregenerate man is a slave to sin. The regenerate man is not. The man has the fruit of the Holy Spirit in them. We looked at those earlier. He also has good works in him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. If you were here earlier in the year, in this spring, when when we were going through Titus, you remember that one of the things that Scott was stressing about the believer is that they have a zeal, they are zealous for good deeds. They have that zealousness within them because God has his spirit in them. The believer also has the ability to obey God in a way that we never had before as an unbeliever. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, helps us understand the epitome of our mixed condition. Um, And this is really good because it it actually verbalizes the flesh that a person still lives in with the spirit that's in them. Galatians 5, 17. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you believe. 
that you please. So you have two things that are at work in a person at once. You have the flesh, the natural birth that they were born with. You have the spirit, and they are in opposition to one another. And the process of sanctification in the life of the believer is the increasing the growth, the tendency, the increasing ability of a believer to abide with the spirit, to live by the spirit, to walk in the spirit while the flesh is appealing, to turn from the flesh and run from sin. That's what sanctification is. One of the evidences that a person has been regenerated in 1 John chapter 1 is that there is an ongoing repentance. There is a confession of sin and repentance. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us for our sins. The believer also has a persevering, ongoing faith in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives within me and the life I live, I I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The believer has faith that God will do what he said he would do. That the person of Jesus Christ on the cross in his place is sufficient sacrifice for that person to be redeemed to God. And lastly, we want to look at how this person is progressing in their Christ-likeness. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 says, We all with unveiled faces, beholding in a mirror the glory of God, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord and the Spirit. We are being transformed into the same image. There is a progressive sanctification that's taking place in the life of a believer. There's the regeneration event which positionally puts them right with God. This is speaking of a progressive sanctification that's taking place, a process by which a Christian becomes more and more Christ-like in the way in which they live. So, that is what... what um, characterizes the the Christian, the one who's been regenerate. All right, so that is what characterizes the believer. So again, they're in a mixed condition. This person is able to not sin in contrast to what they were like as an unregenerate believer. Um, They're able to please God, and there is a fight within them. There is a tension within them, whereas when they were unregenerate, there was no tension. There was no fight with sin. The believer is one who, within him, there is a fight with sin. So if you are struggling with sin in your life today, be encouraged that there is a fight. Persevere in that fight. Use God's word. Use God's grace. Um, But know that that is a sure sign that that God is working in you, that there is a fight. All right. This person is also able to shepherd his heart away from sin with the word of God and to live for righteousness in a way that he never could before. So that is one of the key distinctions. And another distinction is that this person is not under God's wrath any longer. They're not under God's wrath. They're not under God's judgment. They've been released from all of that by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that describes the Christian today. That describes us. We're in a mixed condition, and there is a fight against the sin. There is a a desire for holiness. There's an increasing sanctification of that person. What we're going to look at now is the heavenly man on the third section of our chart. And this is the description of the person um, who has been released from this world. They've been set free from this world. They've died. They've they've gone to be with Christ. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 57. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 57. What we want to be looking at in this passage is... There are two ideas. There is the idea of the, the afterlife. A person is imperishable and they're immortal. 
So keep your eyes on those words, mortality, immortal, perishable, imperishable. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, two ideas in this passage, and we'll look at them briefly. Uh, The imperishable and the immortal. The imperishable here is the idea that something has no capacity to be corrupted or to be spoiled. It has no capacity to be corrupted or spoiled. Think of food that becomes spoiled when it just sits out on the counter. Um, The person who is the heavenly man, he has no capacity to be corrupted or spoiled by sin. Um, Verse 52, we read that the dead will be raised imperishable. Verse 53, this perishable must put on the imperishable. So in our condition today, we are not like that, but we will be in the future. Verse 54, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, each one of these is describing a condition that is not currently and cannot be corrupted or flawed by sin. So what happens and what is true about the, the heavenly man is that he can't be corrupted by sin. But he's also immortal. Not only is he imperishable, He is immortal, and immortal means that he's beyond the reach of death. Verse 54 says the mortal must put on immortality. Verse 54 also says when this mortal will have put on immortality. In verse 54, he also says death is swallowed up in victory. So a person who is a heavenly man who has passed through uh, from this life to the next life is beyond the reach of death. Verse 57 tells us where all of this is found. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory for the Christian comes from the work of Christ in his place at the cross. Christ's death is what secured that for us. In that condition, we will possess no trace of sin. We will have no ability to sin. Um, Death and the consequence for sin will never be in view for us. And that will be the case because there will be no sin present. So this is a wonderful condition. It's a condition in which the person is beyond corruption. They can't be corrupted. And it's a condition in which the person um, is beyond death. And this is an unmixed condition. As you read this, you'll notice that there's no sin that is present. For the regenerate man, sin is present, and they're in a mixed condition. And for the unregenerate man, they're in an unmixed condition where sin is present. The heavenly man, over here on the right of our, our chart, is in an unmixed condition where there is no sin present. And that's why you see uh, at the top of this, you see the yellow, the pure yellow. There's no black involved in it. There's no gray at all. So we'll just look at a few verses here that describe this. We're going to look at just a few of them. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8 tells us that we're at home with the Lord. We are of good courage, I say, and we prefer rather than to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. This person also not only is at home with the Lord, but they resemble Christ. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, 
and it has not yet appeared what we will be, we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. The way in which a person will be like Christ is not that he possesses deity that God has, that Jesus has, but he's like Christ in the sense that he has no sin. Sin has been completely removed from the, from the heavenly man. When he passes out of this life into the heavenly state, um, sin is not present. And that's the way that he resembles Christ. We also look and see that this person is seen for what he really is in Christ. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This person is going to be blameless and full of joy. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in his presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. This person is is full of joy. They're full of joy because sin is no longer present. They're full of joy because death is no longer in view. They're full of joy because they're in God's presence. There's nothing but joy. In this case, in this state, there's no death. There's no sadness. Um, Revelation 21 and 22 uh, speak of the life that is to come. The last two chapters in the Bible talk about the condition that the heavenly man has. And it tells us in verse 4 of Revelation 21, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. Those things have passed away. There's also no curse or there's no night in the heavenly man's experience. Chapter 22, verses 3 and 5 say, There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. Dropping down to verse 5, There will no longer be any night in heaven. This is the experience of the, the heavenly man. There will no longer be any night because he is continually in the presence of God's glory, which enlightens all things. So the question remains, how does a person get from the regenerate man here in this life to the heavenly condition? And what we want to understand is that Jesus wants the believer to transition from his regenerate condition to his heavenly condition. In his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus prays this way. He says, Father, I desire that they also, believers, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. He was speaking of his disciples, but he's also speaking of the the church to come, of believers to come. Jesus wants Christians to be with him where he is in eternity. And so the way God accomplishes that is, and we look at the triggering event here in in the divider between the second and the third sections, is through death. Death is what transitions a person from their regenerate condition into their heavenly condition. And so death is departing the land of the dying and going home. So what we see here is, again, this person has died. And so if we look at what we're going to look at here is uh, down in the bottom quarter or so of your chart, the descriptions of what is taking place when death happens. And so there's a disintegration from the inner man of the inner man from the outer. And it's a disintegration. Integration means to bring together. So disintegration means to separate apart. Second um, Corinthians 5 verses 1 and 8 talk about this. Paul writes, if we, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Um, Paul says, we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body 
and be at home with the Lord. So the idea of being absent with the body is what we're getting at here. This is the disintegration of the body with the inner man or the man's soul. So when we're talking about the inner man and the man's soul, we're talking about the same thing. And it's being separated, it's being disintegrated from the man himself at death. He also has a safe journey home that's described in 2 Timothy verses four, verse, chapter 4, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom, to him to be glory forever and ever. Amen. The person, again, is unseparated from Christ. We read this before that um, in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Read this carefully as it relates to death. Neither death nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So they've been separated. Their body and their inner man are separated. They've become disintegrated, but they're not separate from the love of God. That's what we want to understand about the heavenly man. But we also want to understand that he's still alive. Just because he has physically died, he's not dead. He's actually spiritually alive. In John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. He's talking about the death of Lazarus. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. The Christian who has died is alive and well, even though their body is separated from their soul, their inner man. Something very important we want to understand is that there is a physical death, but the person remains alive. They're not separated from Christ. And the New Testament refers to this as sleep. You'll see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when Paul is writing to that church and he's discussing the communion, he's discussing the Lord's table. He's talking about how some believers had died because of some of the sin that was in their life. The, the terminology that was used there as he refers to them was that they had fallen asleep. It's also true in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. As Paul starts to talk about the rapture, he says, We do not want you to be informed, uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. The church there in Thessalonica was very concerned about what happens to people when they die. Are they in Christ? Do they go to heaven? How do they get there? And Paul refers to those who die as those who are asleep. And he's not talking about a physical sleep here, but he's emphasizing that the, the, sinful, the spiritual man, the one who's redeemed, the inner man continues to exist. This person is also precious to God. The psalmist is writing in Psalm 116. This is Old Testament writing. This is amazing. He writes, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. So the godly ones who have died, those are precious in the sight of the Lord. In order for them to be precious, they must still be alive. They must still exist. So the person um, who has died, who is precious in God's sight, still lives and still exists. And again, there is there is gain for the believer. This is a passage we're familiar with First or uh, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To experience gain requires that a person exist and they be alive, even though they physically died. So what we want to talk about briefly here is that there are two experiences that transition um, a person out of that state into the eternal state here. So we're going to look at a resurrection and we're going to look at um, the rapture. So briefly here, what we have is a discussion of the entry into the final age, the the permanent kingdom age of God, the eternal age of God, and how does a person enter into that? Well, it happens in one of two ways. First, either the person is alive on this earth at the time of that transition into the eternal age when God inaugurates his kingdom 
a person is either alive during that time or a person is dead. They've died in Christ at that time. And for the person who is alive at that time, they will be raptured away to be with Christ and they will be transformed from their earthly body into a regenerate heavenly body. And for the person who has died in Christ, they won't be raptured away. They will be resurrected. They will be raised from the dead. So we'll talk about both of these first. We'll talk about resurrection first. And that is described for us most clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. So I think if you have your Bibles, we have a few minutes left. We'll turn to those those passages. So turn, if you can, to 1 Corinthians 15. This is talking about, again, the imperishable body that is raised. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 58. In verse 42, Paul says, If the body is sown a perishable body in this earth, it is raised an imperishable body. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So what he's talking about there is the kind of body that the resurrected believer will have. He says that the unresurrected believer, the the Christian in their earthly existence, they have a perishable body in verse 42, but it is raised an imperishable body. So there's a raising that takes place. And it it goes from being perishable to being imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. That's the condition that we are naturally born in. But it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. That raising is the re- Um, resurrection event that takes place in the life of a believer. It's the believer who is being raised from the dead into an eternal resurrected body condition. So that resurrection is what takes place. This is something that takes place before saints who are alive are raptured away to be with Christ. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 15. This is the same group of people who had questions about what happens when people die. What happens at the end of of this age? And Paul says, This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, there's the reference to those who are dead in Christ, those who are asleep. He's saying, we who are alive, those who are alive at the time of the return of Christ, they will not proceed to be with Christ until those who have fallen asleep have been raised from the dead and raised to be with Christ. So the resurrection of the dead saints occurs before the transformation of the living saints. Okay, So all of the, the believers who are alive at the return of Christ are going to be able to witness the resurrection of saints who have died in Christ into their resurrection bodies to be with Christ. That will be an observation. That is the resurrection. What comes after that is the rapture. And this is the translation or the transformation of the living Christian into a resurrected body. They'll possess the same kind of resurrected body that the dead saints were resurrected to as well. So we'll read that in verses 16 and 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead when Christ will rise first. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Those who are alive will remain and be caught up together with them in the clouds. That is the process by which the believer is transformed. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us a little bit more about that. In verse 51 and 52, Paul writes, 
I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. He's referring there to the believer who is alive at the time of Christ. They're actually changed, and they're raptured away to be with Christ. So that's God's plan for how to get you from a mixed condition of the regenerate man into the unmixed, sinless condition of the heavenly man. If you're alive at the time of the return of Christ, it involves a rapture away to be with Christ. Um, but before that takes place, there will be the resurrection of the dead of those who have died first, and they go to be with Christ. And both of those groups of people, those that are resurrected and those who are raptured, um, possess the same heavenly body. Okay. So we want to make sure we understand that. And there's two observations that are in this process that are very important for every believer to have. The first that is, in Christ you are not in the unmixed sinful condition that you formerly were. We all, I think we understand that. We're not the same kind of person that we used to be. Um, that person has passed away, and that can never be your condition again. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that the old is gone and the new has come. Um, that person, you can never go back to being that kind of person. And the fact that you're influenced by sin today does not mean that you have slipped back into your unmixed sinful condition. It means you're a believer who's fighting a fight today for purity, for holiness, for godliness. We want to make sure you understand that. So there's no movement back from being in the mixed condition of a believer to the unmixed condition of an unbeliever. But secondly, it's also important to understand that we're not in the condition that we will be in one day. That is a condition that is better for us than the condition that we have now. But it's part of God's plan to bring glory to himself. That when he saves a person, he doesn't save them into heaven. He saves them into a mixed condition on this earth because of the fight that the believer has, that he engages in, by God's grace against sin, is what brings God glory. So we need to understand that, that for the believer today, their position before God is perfect. Okay, your position is perfect but your practice is progressing. Um, so you have a new desire to obey Christ, but indwelling sin is still present and still around. Um, so all of that makes you a mixed creature with a great deal of tension in your life. You have these affections for God that you never had before, but you still live in the world where sin appeals to you. And so the conclusion here that we want to leave with everybody is if the Christian is in a mixed condition like this, do we see how important it is to equip ourselves in every means we can possible for the fight against sin? And the main way that the believer does that is they do that through the reading of the word. They do that for time alone in prayer with, with God. So when you'll hear us mention a reading plan, when you hear us mention uh, time alone with the Lord, when you hear us mention shepherding your heart, the reason for all of that is because we are in a mixed condition today. And we need those things to fight against sin. So that's what we have today. I'll be happy to stick around for a little while afterwards. If you have questions, let me pray and close our time. And my group is going to clean up today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for these men. I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, there's a lot of material here today, and I pray for each one of these men that the truths of your work in a person to regenerate and the truth of your promise to sustain until eternity will maintain these men. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys, thanks a lot.